The article I'll be reading today questions our notion of self, how connected it is with the nature of consciousness, and whether we're even looking at it in the right way. The author goes even further to suggest that we are missing the key perspective of subjects that are arguably much closer to the truth and who are rarely considered in any related studies. Children. Rethinking Identity Children's Experiences of Self by Donna Thomas. Dr. Thomas argues that children, before a conceptual, culture bound notion of self is inculcated in them, have a more spontaneous, broader sense of identity that defies our current worldview. She argues that their more natural, fluid self is more conducive to overcoming the despair characteristic of our present situation and that it has much to teach us about reality itself. For Hannah Arendt, theorizing can only arise, quote, out of incidents of living experience and must remain bound to them as the only guidepost by which to take its bearings. Unquote. Some scientists may disagree, as research that relies on the personal accounts of people is often regarded as poor academic practice. In the Cartesian dominated world of science, the business of social researchers is to capture and explain human experience, while attempting to justify its empirical validity. This is a grave task when the bar is set at replicability, measurability, and an empiricism that relies on conditioned consensus. How can the immeasurable be measured? Social scientists interpret human experience through incidents of themes, linguistic analysis, stories, and collective agreements, all through the lens of the researcher's position governed by the latest theoretical ideas, with each turn constructing, deconstructing, fragmenting, and obliterating the self. Despite Arendt's concept of experiential authority appealing exclusively to political life, the social sciences run with the idea of lived experience as a valid source of knowledge. In this way, Social realities, systems, and what it means to be human can be understood through the stories that people tell. Arendt herself ambiguously classifies experience as collective, not something that can be gleaned through subject-object relations. Yet social researchers tend to assume a Cartesian subject as a source of epistemic authority in relation to self, others, and the world. This subject is the story I, an apparent self that moves through chronological and spatial dimensions, an inner subject held in relation to outer objects. As Nietzsche posits, a specifically linguistic, figurative habit of immemorial standing, a self that is, in the Foucauldian sense, entangled in discourses, 
that circumscribe and constrain who we are. I have seen this happen recently with children who frequently have non-ordinary experiences. Children who have premonitions, talk with deceased relatives, engage with disembodied beings, visit alternative realities, and can lucid dream on command. Although these experiences are considered as non-ordinary, they appear to carry a surprising ordinariness in the life worlds of many children. Children who are consistently silenced, ignored, and at worst, diagnosed for experiences that do not fit into the dominant cultural narrative. When I research with these children, I listen to their story eyes, which are filled with discourses of illness, shame and difference. Self is never considered beyond the story. Yet as these children show, self and experience appear to extend far beyond mainstream ideologies, the limitations of language, and even past their own inner narrative worlds. Postmodern preoccupation with lived experience and narrative self pays little attention to the eye of experience. In terms of its ontological existence and epistemological authority. Children have long been absent from studies concerned with the nature of self, world, and experience. But they, children, are now bringing a very real challenge to our mainstream ideologies about the nature of reality and what it means to be human. Such concerns are normally reserved for adult academics, typically acted out in bodies of philosophical and scientific scholarship. There are lots of reasons given for the exclusion of children, such as their reliability as research informants and traditional child development theories concerned with ego. Yet children and young people have much to teach us about the nature of self and reality. In the case of a recent pilot study we conducted, ontological questions began to arise from the experiences of children. Using self-inquiry research methods, children witnessed their story selves from what Al-Bahari notes as an quote, aperspectival, unconditioned awareness, unquote a witness consciousness that is, quote, diaphanous, because rather than being just another object to be found within the conscious field, it is the field of awareness itself, unquote. Their non-ordinary experiences began to take on a logic in keeping with their direct experiences of self. Differences on the level of the story eye collapsed between these children as they shifted into what we called a knowing eye. Language became redundant in these research moments, while silence, physiology and symbol became the main source of data. By holding the Cartesian subject to speculation, we moved beyond the story eye in our social research practice. The idea of conceptual experience, 
was replaced by a more direct experiencing of self and reality. Children used metaphors to try to convey their experience of self beyond their story I. As Seminole et al. recognize in their work studying the language of the dying, metaphors are valuable for expressing and reinforcing different ways of making sense of our experiences. In the case of children in the study, metaphors supported how they represented an aspect of self as trapped in bubbles or egos. Self outside or below the cover was experienced by children as free, natural, and connected to other people and the world. The idea of self enclosed in a bubble was repeated on several occasions by children, as well as how a deeper self was hidden or underneath it. The bubble itself can be held to speculation, exploring what it is made of. More often than not, the bubble is itself a story. When participants shifted their epistemic position from inside the bubble to beyond it, their sense of individuality and linear time began to dissolve. The pilot study afforded opportunities to think about the nature of self, subjectivity, and a spectrum of human experience that, as Roxborough and Co. suggest, is very ordinary. One could argue against the value of distinguishing between subject and object on the level of social life. Retaining individual agency and our personal stories offer an anchor and a means for navigating social reality. Our stories are a way of affirming oneself in a time that interrogates identities and selves. Yet we are a society in crisis, in a liminal space held between different accounts of the world. Part of this collective despair is rooted in the illusion of self. We need to return to metaphysical questions in social research as a means for attending to a world that is falling down. Adults may not be as psychologically prepared to see through the story I, whereas our younger generation appear to be naturally aligned to such ontological inquiry. In line with Arendt's appeal to the importance of experience in theoretical speculation, qualitative research in a different guise should be contributing to wider scientific and philosophical studies of reality. This could involve carrying out ontological excavations in social research practice, using interdisciplinary research methods, and building philosophical propositions from the experiences of people. It requires all assumptions about the nature of reality and what it means to be human to be dropped, to have the courage to walk into the unknown with people and see every experience as ordinary. And as we talk about blurring the boundaries between subject and object, Larger boundaries between different academic disciplines need to be dissolved to address the unanswerable questions.
the hard problem of consciousness, and the mystery of being human. Footnote Self-inquiry is a practice associated with Eastern philosophical traditions. More recently, self-inquiry processes have been used in Western, non-dual circles and teaching as a means for exploring self and promoting well-being. The concept of the selfie is taken from the cultural phenomenon of using digital technology to capture images of the self. While selfies have been observed in relation to narcissism and self-promoting behaviours, using the concept to facilitate a deeper inquiry into the nature of self and non-ordinary experiences has been useful with children and young people. When I first read this article, I was immediately transported back to an arresting existential moment that my baby niece had. Only six or seven months at the time, she was intently looking at her right hand. Studying it would be a more appropriate word. She kept flipping it palm up and down, and then, incredibly, using her left hand to pull at some of the fingers, as if checking whether they were detachable. I was lucky enough to have been able to capture this on video, and it still fascinates me to watch it unfold. This to me is strongly indicative of the underlying nature of our consciousness. It implies that our body is not original to our intimate sense of self. Most people would dismiss this observation, as the baby, having been previously largely unconscious, is now more conscious because it's discovering its body, as though being aware of the body signals awareness. But as Dr. Thomas seems to suggest, perhaps babies have in fact a freer, more expansive sense of self, before realising their localization in this physical form. So instead of the baby coming into awareness by discovering the body, one could see it in a different way in that this expanded consciousness has now become aware of its limitation in this body. And this discovery requires an adjustment period, an entire lifetime, one might argue. Contemplating this article and the video I took of my niece Carmen, who is now eight, I wondered what it would all be like for her now, and so I decided to have a little chat with her. I'm no child psychologist, and so a skilled professional would have probably been able to coax out more insights by asking the right questions in the right way. I tried to keep my questions varied and alternated levels of complexity. Overall, and understandably, her answers were brief, and she couldn't always expand further on her thoughts. But there were still things she said that gave me pause. I started by asking her if she had heard the word consciousness and if she knew what it meant. She replied that she had in fact heard it, but wasn't clear on the meaning. To simplify, I told her some people define it as being aware of our surroundings and of what's inside us, thoughts, feelings, etc. I asked her if she was conscious then, to which she replied yes, 
and then, almost as a throwaway and expecting a negative answer, I asked, how about when you're asleep? But she said yes. Oh, interesting. Tell me more, I exclaimed. She said it wasn't all the time, but that often she was aware that she was sleeping. I later confirmed this with my sister, who said she'd had a number of conversations with her about that happening. Huh. I moved on to talk about dreams, and whether they're significant in any way. She wasted no time in saying, it depended on the dream, but that some of them were definitely meaningful. Through the course of our conversation, I asked her a range of other questions including whether she thought animals are aware in the way we are and whether they experience emotions like love, to which she emphatically replied, yes. The value of kindness, which she said was very, very important, otherwise Earth would just be cruel. And whether she believed there existed something that we couldn't see, hear, taste, smell or touch, to which she responded, hmm, ghosts. To test this notion further, I said, I actually wanted to ask you about that. Do you believe in ghosts, spirits and fairies? She confidently said, I believe in ghosts and spirits, but not fairies. When I nudged her to explain why she believed in ghosts and spirits, she said, and I quote, Because there can't just be us. There has to be something else. Think about that one for a second. She couldn't expand further, but I was extremely intrigued with that answer. In closing, we would do well to reconsider our narrow, learned notion of self and try and reconnect with that uncensored and spacious sense of wonder that we all had once upon a time. It might help to engage with a child and perhaps, for the first time, really pay attention. Thanks for listening and tune in next year.